Hello, and welcome to Teen Scientist on WDIY. My name is Raina Malhotra, your host tonight. Here on the show, I bring you stories from teenage perspectives, specifically in the science, technology, engineering, and math disciplines. The program highlights local, regional, and national STEM stories with young people and respected experts in their fields. Tonight, we have a very special guest joining us, former NASA astronaut and retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and pilot, Professor Terry Hart. Thank you so much for joining us today. Nice to be here, Raina. Now, for our listeners, we have a lot of things in store for tonight, including talking about NASA's upcoming Artemis launch, the recent DART mission, and the James Webb Telescope. But before we jump in, I want to learn more a bit about our guest tonight. So, Professor Hart, can you tell us a bit about your background in education? Well, sure. Well, uh, foremost, I'm a Lehigh alum, so I graduated from Lehigh in mechanical engineering, the same department I teach in today, uh, way back in 1968. And I grew up in Pittsburgh and then um, graduated from Lehigh, uh, went to uh, MIT for a master's, and then into the Air Force for four years. I flew fighters. Uh, Then I got out a little early and flew with the National Guard, uh, mostly in New Jersey for the next 17 years, flying fighters there. And then I worked at Bell Laboratories uh, and, of course, then NASA. So I had a lot of opportunity to do a lot of different things, you know, in technology and operations. And you obviously have, a, have had a very long and exciting career. Can you briefly walk us through the general timeline starting right after you graduated up until where you're at now? Well, I was uh, fortunate to have a job with uh, Bell Laboratories, uh, which was a great place for a young engineer to, to learn uh, technology, in my case, mechanical and electrical engineering at Bell Labs. And we designed uh, equipment for the telephone system in those years. Uh, then, of course, at NASA, I um, was doing astronaut work, so we trained to fly the space shuttle. We were the first group they hired to fly the space shuttle, so that was 1978. So Sally Ride and the other five women in our group you know, were the first uh, American female astronauts that, uh, that I trained with. Uh, flew my mission. Um, we could talk more about that later if you like. And then I came back to Bell Laboratories, continued flying fighters on the weekend. But I got into AT&T's satellite business. At that point, I was the head of engineering for the Telstar satellites that uh, we launched for communication purposes, uh, including NPR's distribution <laughs> on our Telstar satellites. Then at that point, uh, AT&T decided to sell the business, and I went off uh, as the president of the business for seven years before I retired. And then I came back to Lehigh, full circle. And what was it that qualified you for your first position in your job at Bell Labs? Was it something that you've always you know, worked up to get to, or did it kind of just happen? Yeah, I, I think from the time I was a toddler, I loved trying to understand how things work. I would uh, take things apart. Uh, very rarely could have put them back together at that age, but I, I love to understand how things work. So I had a natural uh, leaning toward engineering, you know, which I, I pursued then at, at, uh, at Lehigh. And while you were at Bell Labs, you received two patents, one for a mechanical safety device and the other for a noise suppression circuit. Can you tell us a bit more about this whole experience for you and what exactly those devices do? Sure. At the, at the time I was working uh, in the part of Bell Laboratories that designed power equipment, the entire telephone system floats on batteries. Uh, so we made the equipment that would um, uh, convert the batteries voltages to different voltages for the electronic equipment. So uh, I was doing both the mechanical and the electrical engineering on those devices. So um, you know, one was a mechanical safety device where when you plugged in the converter to avoid possible hazard to the technician, uh, the power was switched off. But as it plugged in, it automatically switched on in a way that was uh, safe for the equipment. 
Um, and then we also had a, um, a problem with noise, electronic noise on the phone circuits being generated by the equipment, by the switching of the converters. So I designed a circuit that would sync that noise to the clock so you wouldn't basically hear the noise anymore. Really interesting. And what was it that initially sparked your whole interest in the field of aerospace and mechanical engineering? Was it you playing around as a kid or sometime in college? What was that spark from? I think it started at a young age. I mean, I was um, a young boy growing up in Pittsburgh, as I mentioned, um, when Sputnik was launched in 1957. I was 11 years old, and I remember watching watching the uh, uh, Sputnik satellite come over Pittsburgh at night, you know, right after the sun went down. Kind of an impressive event at the time, and, and there were there was no word about a career in being being an astronaut at that point. You know, it was years later. Uh, when the astronauts started to be hired. But I always had an interest in, in uh, aviation and space from a young age, um, you know, tied to my engineering. So I never really thought I'd have a chance to do that. I didn't really plan my career that way. But when the opportunity opened and NASA started hiring the first space shuttle astronauts, I put an application in kind of on a whim. I didn't think they'd really pick me, but they did. <laughs> so I had a nice uh, opportunity for six years to train and then fly on the, on the space shuttle. That's really great. And I want to quickly transition to your experiences with the Air Force. How long were you a fighter pilot for about? Well, about 22 years, uh, mostly on the weekends. I only had four years uh, on active duty. And then the rest of the time was on the weekends in New Jersey and then down in Texas, you know, where I uh, flew fighters those years, mostly air defense fighters, but some uh, air to ground um, uh, fighters as well. And you've logged over 3,000 hours of flying time and ended your whole experience as a lieutenant colonel. What was the most memorable moment of this specific career for you? Do you have any fun stories you can share with us? Yeah, I was kind of in the middle of the, of the Cold War, Reina, and um, yeah, things weren't real good between the United States and the Soviet Union at that time. There was, it was after the Cuban Missile Crisis, but the Russians were still flying their aircraft back and forth from Cuba. So they come right up and down the East Coast. So our mission was to go out there and escort them. And we would uh, escort them for several hundred miles and then hand them off to the next fighter squadron down in Virginia and so forth. So uh, that mission was pretty memorable to fly up on the wing of a, um, of a Russian bomber and to see the crew inside there watching you as you came up. You know, fortunately, you know, things got better in the years after that uh, in terms of the Cold War winding down. Absolutely. I can't even imagine. And then after this, in 1978, you were selected by NASA as an astronaut candidate. And then six years later, you flew into space as a mission specialist on the STS-41C Challenger. Can you tell me more about this mission? What, what was it? It was a pretty exciting mission. We were just getting the space shuttle up and running now. And this mission was our first opportunity to do a rendezvous with another satellite that was already in orbit. Uh, it was a satellite that was launched by NASA about four years earlier called Solar Maximum, and it was a scientific mission to study the sun. But unfortunately, the satellite had a failure after a few months on orbit. So we trained for about two years to do the rendezvous, then get close to the satellite, bring it on board the space shuttle, do a repair, and then put it back into space. Uh, we have a couple stumbles, you know, but we ultimately succeeded in repairing the satellite and putting it back into service. And it lasted for about another six years you know, before it finally reentered. So it, it did its scientific mission. And how long were you actually in space for? It was almost exactly a week uh, that, that we were up there. It takes about three days to do a rendezvous uh, and hook up with a satellite. And then once I grabbed it with a mechanical arm and had it on board, it took two days for us to repair it. And then another day to put it back in service. So it ended up being uh, almost exactly a week. 
And what was the most interesting part about actually being in space for a week? That's like, were there any habits or, you know, showering, eating? What was the most interesting part? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, most of our training and everything is focused on the mission, you know, uh, doing our tasks and all. But but you have to also learn how to live in space. And it's a little bit like going camping. You, you have to take all your equipment with you and make sure you know how to use it. And um, in the case of um, space, we learn a lot from the people who have gone before us, of course. But there's no way to really um, duplicate weightlessness on the ground so there's a lot of things you have to learn the first couple of days you're in space but it's a lot of fun i mean the first time you look out the window and you see the world going by and the thunderstorms and the oceans and the currents and all it's really spectacular uh, it's a beautiful planet we live on and did you ever expect you would actually be able to go in space? Like, what, what was your reaction like when you found out? Yeah, it was pretty exciting when I got that phone call. Uh, they were announcing on the radio that, that um, there would be a selection of 35 astronauts that day in January of 78. And I, I didn't. I wasn't holding out much uh, hope, as I said. I didn't think because there were 8,000 applicants, and then we picked, you know, 35 of us. But I was fortunate to be in that crowd, and then uh, we started training uh, that summer. And as a former NASA astronaut, you've actually been formally briefed about NASA's upcoming Artemis One mission, mm -hmm. which is sending a new spacecraft into orbit around the moon in its most consequential launch in decades. Can you walk us through the goals and significance of this mission? Sure. It's, it's, it's our country and the world's return to the moon with people. So we're going to do it in steps. Uh, this very large rocket is slightly bigger than the Saturn V, which had been the largest rocket ever built. Uh, so uh, we're going to be able to take a little bit more payload to the moon. So there'll be four astronauts in the capsule, uh, which won't be for a few more years. They're going to do a couple of test flights. So this one coming up, of course, is unmanned, and, and it will have um, about a two-month mission. It depends on the launch date and all, but they'll take the capsule out with uh, mannequins on there, actually, uh, like, like dummy astronauts on there with sensors and everything to record all the um, uh, different parameters from the mission. Uh, and they'll go out, uh, circumnavigate the moon for, for quite a few number of weeks, um, and then uh, return to Earth with a very high-speed reentry. In fact, that'll probably be the, the highest-speed reentry that we've ever done, you know, coming back from outer space. So that will test the rocket going up, uh, the spacecraft while it's in space, and then most important, the reentry and, and the ability for the rocket, to, the uh, capsule to survive reentry and land in the water. So that will set the stage, and then um, there'll be a couple more missions, um, and then um, they'll have the first crewed mission. And the selection of Artemis was uh, deliberate in the sense that Artemis was Apollo's sister in Greek mythology. So there were, uh, NASA said there will be a woman on this first mission to the surface uh, of, the, of the moon. Uh, probably we're talking 2025, maybe 2026, you know, depending on funding and technical issues and so forth. That's really interesting fact about that. That's a very, very exciting. Yeah. And what are the goals for the future Artemis 2 and 3 missions? Yeah, it's a little different approach. What we're trying to do, rather than just go to the moon and, and do some science and come back, which we've done a lot of, we brought back over 1,000 pounds of moon rocks, you know, back on the Apollo program, they want to set up a logistics system where there's going to be a deep space gateway that's going to orbit the moon in a very high orbit around the moon. They're going to uh, think of it as a space station uh, orbiting the moon. So they'll set that up first, and then the crews will go to the space station called the Deep Space Gateway. They'll go down to the surface of the moon and back up again. So in a sense, it's really a dress rehearsal for going to Mars, because when we do the Mars missions in a few more years, hopefully, uh, they'll use that same Deep Space Gateway to, to construct the vehicle that will depart the moon's orbit to go to Mars and then come back in the same way. And the mission was originally 
expected to launch about a month or two ago. Do you know why mm-hmm. it got delayed to November? It, it's it's a difficult situation when you're doing a brand new rocket. So the, the early space shuttle program that I was most familiar with, we had a, several delays like this. Uh, uh, in fact, the, the same cause, uh, hydrogen leaks. Liquid hydrogen is very cold. It's only 20 degrees above absolute zero, which is about minus 450 degrees Fahrenheit or something on that order. So very, very cold. So when you fuel the rocket, all those uh, lines and seals get very cold, so they contract. And as a result, it's very easy for these tiny little hydrogen uh, atoms to to leak you know, through the seals. So that's what happened on, on this launch. The, the first one was scrubbed actually because of a sensor problem at that very cold temperature. Then the second one was scrubbed because of an actual leak. So now they think they fixed up. But we had the same kind of uh, growing pains with the space shuttle. You know, once we uh, had two or three years of operating the space shuttle, we, we had all those leaks pretty well identified and re-engineered the seals in a way that they didn't uh, reoccur. Oh. So right now we're going to pause for a quick moment to take a break. But when we return, Professor Hart will continue to discuss two other major successful NASA ventures. This is Raina Malhotra, and you're listening to Teen Scientist on WDIY. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Underwriting on WDIY is an affordable and effective way to provide information about your product and services to people who care. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100 or WDIY.org. WDIY 88.1 offers many choices and real voices. Folk music, from folk classics to the Gaelic traditions of the British Isles, to bluegrass and old-time music of Appalachia, to the modern-day singer-songwriters telling the story of today's world. You'll find it all here on WDIY. Listen and enjoy the wide variety of folk music every weekday evening, 7 to 9 p.m., just after NPR News Headlines, and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. on 88.1 WDIY and streaming at WDIY.org. Welcome back to Teen Scientist on WDIY. I'm your host, Raina Malhotra. With me tonight is former NASA astronaut and U.S. Air Force fighter pilot, Professor Terry Hart. Now, as an expert in the field of aerospace and engineering, I did want to speak with you about the two major NASA ventures that have already been successful. Firstly, the DARTS, or the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. What does this do, and why is it so important? Well, we have a, a threat to our planet. Uh, it's a very low probability, but uh, occasionally asteroids will uh, hit our planet. And, of course, the, the extinction of the dinosaurs is the most famous one. I guess that was about 65 million years ago. Yeah, but it's been uh, occurring over the history of the planet. Uh, so there's an ongoing risk to that that we'd like to be able to address. So uh, uh, NASA's mission here was a test in the sense that they find an asteroid that's sort of in the Earth's orbit and not going to affect us, and it has a much smaller asteroid going around it in a small orbit. And so they decided to target the small one. So this mission uh, took, a, I guess, a couple years you know, for it to get there, and they made a direct hit on the uh, small asteroid. So now they're busy with uh, telescopes and other instruments to try to understand how much it changed the orbit. So they can use those calculations in the future to say, okay, if, I, if we see an asteroid that's going to impact the Earth two or three years from now or come close, then we'll, let's move it a little bit so we can do those calculations, uh, design the spacecraft, launch it, and then uh, uh, have the collision occur 
in a way at a time early enough and in a way that it moves the asteroid away from the Earth. And how big is the dart relative to the actual size of the asteroid? Yeah, the ast- asteroid is several football fields big. Uh, the uh, the DART spacecraft they refer to as being refer- refrigerator size. You know, so it's a, a maybe like a cubic meter or so of uh, dimensions. You know, weighs a, several tons. You know, so that would be able to impact the the smaller asteroid at a high enough velocity to to move it a little bit. And how is such a small object able to completely redirect the path of the asteroid? Well, that's a function of the orbital mechanics, the way these asteroids move around the sun. If you get to them early enough, it doesn't take much of a deflection. Just a little bit of a nudge will get it off course so it'll miss the Earth by quite a bit then. So, so the sooner you get there, the better. So the, this particular mission was to determine you know, how much can we do with a normal-sized spacecraft. So how early do we have to deflect a much larger asteroid to get it out of the Earth's way? So it may be in the future we just see that something you know, maybe five years from now, we're not going to be able to say it's going to hit the Earth but maybe it's going to come uncomfortably close. So we'll just go ahead and move it so it's not uncomfortably close anymore. That may be the more likely scenario than, than a, a sure thing that's going to impact us because it'll be too many years away to, to know for sure that it's going to hit the Earth. And as you mentioned, the chances would be pretty low, but what is the probability of NASA actually having to employ the DART out of necessity? I, th- I think uh, in the future we'll want to do it. I-, I think there will be cases where we get better and better at detecting the asteroids so we can see smaller and smaller ones now. So we, we may want to move one even if um, it's not big enough to cause a big catastrophe. There was one in uh, 1905 that entered the Earth's atmosphere and impacted uh, in Siberia. And it caused uh, what we would call today a large nuclear explosion, blew down trees for, for many miles around. So uh, I think uh, and that was a one that was probably about as um, big as a city block, maybe or a little smaller than a city block. So the the future we may detect small enough asteroids. We decide, well, let's just move that rather than have uh, an explosion here on Earth um, three or four years from now. I also wanted to speak with you about the very recent successes of the James Webb Telescope, mm-hmm. which was actually able to capture a picture of the DART in action, I believe. So what exactly is the James Webb Telescope for our listeners who don't know, and how does it work? Well, let's talk about Hubble first, because Hubble's one people kind of know about. Uh, Hubble's going around the Earth every 90 minutes, and it's uh, able to point at stars uh, in the visible light band. It can look back uh, about 11 billion years. Uh, in other words, light that was created by galaxies and stars 11 billion years ago traveling to us finally got here, and Hubble could detect that. The further away the uh, the galaxies are, the faster they're moving away from us. That shifts the visible light into the infrared band. So uh, Hubble can't see that anymore because uh, it, uh, it's basically only in the visible band. So Webb was designed by the scientists to go deep into the infrared band to see these very distant objects. So they're the very first galaxies that were formed 11, 12, 13 billion years ago. So, uh, so it's very exciting, and, they're, and it's working so well. The program manager is a Lehigh alum, uh, Scott Willoughby. Uh, visited uh, Lehigh twice last year to talk to my students and, and other uh, people on campus and show some of the, the photographs that were coming back from Webb. So it's all, all very exciting. That is really cool. And how far back in time does Webb go when it captures images, and how is this information even significant? Well, yeah, we think the the universe is a the Big Bang occurred. We think about fourteen billion years ago, fourteen point something, or there's, there's some uncertainty on the exact time. 
and and maybe uh, 500 million years after that, we can see those galaxies that were formed, you know, by that Big Bang explosion. It, it takes you know it took hundreds of thousands of years for the gravitational forces to collect to the point where uh, stars were being formed and galaxies were being formed. Uh, so it's all moving away from us faster and faster uh, as, it, uh, as it gets further away. So that, that's why the redshift is so important you know, for Webb to be able to look in the infrared band uh, to see these. Uh, Hubble, can't, Hubble can't see them. And what do you think the next major projects or ventures will be in the aerospace field? How, are the, how do you think NASA is going to take this another step further? Well, I think the the major thing most people would like to see is a, a mission to Mars. I mean, it's the most exciting uh, aspect of exploration is to land on another planet. So this Artemis mission, as I mentioned earlier, is like paving the way to do that. Once we build the deep space gateway uh, around the moon, then we'll have a place to uh, to go to and construct a spacecraft of the future. And much like the movie The Martian, uh, we'll develop a a supply route, you know, through the deep space gateway to Mars and back again. So that round trip takes about three years uh, minimum to go to Mars and come back. And as an expert in the field, I feel like it's a fair time to ask, do you genuinely think this is something that can happen in the near future? I think we can make it happen uh, as soon as we make up our, our mind to do it. Uh, the, the, the interesting aspect here is that when President Kennedy said, let's go to the moon, that was uh, 1962, and we had to do it by 1969. There were so many things that had to be invented. Uh, we didn't have solid-state computers. You know, we didn't have a lot of things. We didn't know how to communicate, uh, navigate around the moon. Uh, all, uh, the spacecraft had so many systems that, that hadn't been designed yet. So a lot of an invention was required. To go to Mars, we don't need to invent anything. You know, we know how to do it today. We have the engineering to do it. It's just a matter of making up our mind that we're going to uh, put the people to work uh, to make it happen. Yeah, definitely. And before we wrap up, I want to circle back to your experiences as a passionate innovator and explorer and a former student. Um, what was the biggest highlight of your career? I know that's a hard question, but <laughs> maybe a couple of the biggest highlights of your career. I think certainly the, my mission in space, since, uh, especially since it set a whole bunch of firsts for NASA, the you know, first rendezvous with a space shuttle and the first repair of a satellite uh, so those those images and all are uh, very memorable for me. And all my flying experiences with the Air Force were great, too. So I, I had the, um, the good fortune of being on a lot of really good teams, uh, people working very hard, either in the military or at NASA or at Bell Laboratories, uh, to accomplish something together. And the teamwork and the sense of uh, bringing technology to service, you know, for for our country is um, it's really a wonderful feeling to be a, a, have been a part of all that. And I feel like I should ask the flip side, what was the biggest challenge or hurdle that you've had to face during your career, and how did you overcome it? I, I think um, at NASA, the, the biggest hurdle was being uh, patient, and um, we had a lot of training to go through, and and uh, people think astronaut training is uh, you're in simulators all the time. Uh, actually, a lot of it is just sitting through meetings and trying to figure out how you're going to accomplish something, you know, working with, with the team at NASA to uh, all the engineers there to figure out how you're going to operate, in our case, the space shuttle, uh, or how we're going to go to the moon and back to the moon and how we're going to go to Mars. Uh, so much has to be worked out there that it requires a, a lot of patience and, and, um, uh, and focus in, in, um, in meetings and, and all with all the other astronauts and, and uh, engineers at NASA. So it, being part of that whole process is wonderful, but it does take time and, and uh, focus. So would you say like during that whole process, the challenges 
you were able to learn patience and those skills have stayed with you for the rest of your life? Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of uh, times I'm impatient. I want to get things done tomorrow, you know, and, and move on. Uh, but when you're doing these major projects like the space shuttle and now Artemis, it takes a lot of focus over a long period of time you know, to succeed. And from someone who's been both a mentor and a student, what advice would you give to our young listeners that are interested in this field of science? Well, uh, follow your passion where it takes you. Whatever kind of science and engineering um, uh, creates that passion for you, you know, pursue that. And then uh, look around you and see what everyone else is doing and become part of a team because almost everything we do anymore is interdisciplinary. The day where uh, a pioneer is going to um, do something like Charles Lindbergh did, for example, uh, is probably behind us. What, to do, accomplish anything more, we need people from all different walks of life coming together and working together as a team to accomplish you know, these very difficult objectives. So learning how to be a member of that team and make, make your contribution is, is a very valuable skill to have. Yeah, definitely. I, even myself, I've noticed as a student, collaboration and teamwork mm-hmm. is a great skill and value to have. Lastly, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your career? Uh, well, I, I guess I have a, a bio out there at, um, uh, at Lehigh on uh, lehigh.edu. Uh, they could also, um, I have the honor of being our graduation speaker two years ago, right in the middle of COVID. So we, instead of uh, doing that live, we uh, recorded that. So that's on YouTube. So it's about an 11-minute graduation speech from two years ago where I talk about a lot of my stories at NASA and the Air Force that you might enjoy. So I think if you go on YouTube and search um, Terry Hart Lehigh, uh, it'll come up and you might uh, enjoy uh, hearing that graduation speech. Thank you. And thank you, Professor Hart, for taking the time to be with us today. It's been fascinating to hear about your knowledge and expertise in the fields of aerospace and engineering. And it was a true pleasure to talk to you. Thank thank you, Randa. Nice to meet you. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in today for WDIY's Teen Scientist. Check out WDIY.org for more great content. I'm Randa Malhotra, and I'll see you next time on Teen Scientist.